Very good. <laughs> so you, you, he, told, he told me um, your whole, your, it's, it's going to take the whole class, right? Or when your class goes into it. That was like that for all these visitors. And it was exactly what you would imagine. It was just... Uh, also the general support. Uh, and um, I need to introduce kind of an, a, uh, ex, an experiment in um, collaborative introducing. Uh, we have uh, Francesca Voltz is going to come up here and read a piece that she's merged with the sick and absent Amanda Martin-Santino. So uh, we'll see how this goes. Uh, Thanks for coming. It'll be excellent. It's going to go really well. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. Let's take care of this <laughs> for all, yeah. Um, and it is delightful to see everyone here for the first reading of this, of this quarter of the series. Um, so... This is in Mandy's words. When participating in Christina's Latin American literature course last quarter, both Roman Lujan and Vicente Luis Mora cited Christine Rivera Garza as one of the most influential writers of their work. A native of the US-Mexico border, Christina has written more than 15 books, including novels, nonfiction, poetry, and texts about the history of psychiatry and mental illness in late 19th century Mexico. Writing in both Spanish and English, Christina's works have been translated into Italian, Portuguese, German, and Korean. Christina is the only author to have won the Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz Prize for women writing in the Spanish language twice for her 2001 novel, Nadie Me Vera Llorar, No One Will See Me Cry, and her 2009 novel, La Muerte Me Da, Death Gives Me. She studied urban sociology at the National Autonomous University of Mexico and received her PhD in Latin American history from the University of Houston. In addition to writing multiple fiction and historical pieces at a time, Christina writes La Mano Obliqua, The Oblique Hand, a weekly column for the cultural section of the Mexican newspaper Milenio and maintains the bilingual blog, No Ita Lugar, No Such Place. She currently teaches writing and literature courses at UC San Diego. And if you have a chance, you should really study with her. As an introduction to her aesthetics, Mandy would like to offer the following quote from an interview with Chela Rose Samuelson of UC Santa Barbara. The books that interest me as a reader are books that actually touch my complete being. I like to think of those books as my thinking companions. They help me to interpret the world in which I live and to interpret it in ways that might be uncomfortable for me. The physical process of thinking is a thinking that involves the body, the body as the center of perception, but also the periphery of perception. And then here's my Sodan edition. Um, as a student of CRG, as some of us like to call her, she is also to be commended for her commitment to connecting literary community across borders by drawing together writers from Latin America and the United States and beyond. 
Um, and one of the greatest things that I've taken away from my experiences as a student in CRG's classes is, and you can actually call me out if this is way off, but is that writing is not something we happen to do, but a practice we engage in that utilizes a system, that system being language, that was constructed long before we inherited it, which means every writing choice we make has the potential to be a dialogue, a collusion, or a dismantling of the forces that built it. So without further ado, it is my honor to welcome Christina Rivera-Garza. Well, that went pretty well. Thank you so much, Frankie, for that introduction. And thank you, everybody, for, uh, for being here. <clears throat> I think that could be, is that okay? Hello. I'm going to be uh, reading a short piece of fiction that just um, was published this month, this month in uh, Bombs Magazine. And then if we have time, I can read another uh, short piece. It's more like a nonfiction, a sort of like manifesto, political manifesto about writing. But um, either I can read that or just talk about it with your questions and have a dialogue about that. I'm always talking about that no matter what I do, so we'll eventually get there. Uh, the title of this piece is The Carpathian Mountain Woman. It has an epigraph um, by Michael Palmer's son. Write this. We have burned all their villages. Write this. We have burned all their villages and the people in them. Write this. We have adopted their customs and their manner of dress. I first came here 20 years ago. I answered softly as I pretended not to notice his intense blue gaze. He didn't believe me. That's what I assumed. He didn't believe me. So I went on to tell him I arrived on the back of a gray donkey with a bit of a food and a couple of notebooks. He put a blade of grass between his teeth and said nothing. The hint of a smile between his lips, the sky as blue as his eyes, the wind. And you've been dressing like a man ever since? I remember how he had taken me, violently, a stray longing in each hand, a private fury, his fingers like can openers in my mouth. How long I had gone without seeing an artifact like that. I remembered the smell of his sweat, vaguely carnivorous, and the bitter taste of his cheeks. Still bent over the river and still pretending not to see him, I told him it was better to live alone as a man. He didn't ask me why I said that. He picked up his small leather satchel and started to leave. I counted his steps without turning around to look at him. When he got to number 23, I hesitated. He turned around. Will you wait for me? He asked. Yes, I said, still bent over the river water. I put my hand in the current and pulled out a smooth, round stone. I held it in front of me as if it were a mirror. Then I slipped it into the right-hand pocket of my overalls. I thought I wanted to remember that afternoon. 
I thought the stone was in the place of the stranger. I never knew why I had mentioned that figure 20 years. I also didn't know what it was, uh, why he made me promise to wait for. Before choosing my destiny, I had read about them. A strange book, half history and half legend. A book from a library in the city. I read it immodestly, as I used to do in those days, with the moistened tip of my index finger perpetually poised to turn the page. I forgot to eat. I only stopped occasionally to get a, to get a drink of water, but I never actually drank it. As soon as I put the rim of the glass to my lips, I would become distracted again. Something urgent called me from across the room, and I answered that call. Before closing the book, I had already made up my mind. I would leave that place, that kitchen, that library, that city. I would become someone else, one of them. It's difficult to explain why one does the things one does. But everything happened just like it does in the books. I left the place, and almost without a plan, I showed up in a small village where they needed men. I put on my new clothes, and I committed myself to a life of celibacy. And they, who were so few, bowed their heads when I passed. The stranger showed up in front of my door one day at around noon. He didn't arrive, as I, had, as I once had, on the back of a donkey, but on the battered seat of a military vehicle, a mud-spattered windshield, four thick tires, a torn canvas roof. The letters on the door made no sense to me, but the words he spoke to me did. He asked me for water, and since I didn't move, he opened his canteen and turned it upside down. Do you understand me? He repeated with, a growing, with growing exasperation, I need water. I hadn't seen anyone like him for a long time. His gestures, so childlike, so unnecessary, moved me. He seemed to be afraid of dying. Where are you from? I asked him, trying to make him feel less uncomfortable as he stood there in the doorway. Perhaps I was already trying to dissuade him, to distract him. I've never known how to get rid of people. When he gave a start, which he attempted to conceal, I realized that he couldn't see me well. My house, like all the mountain houses, was small and dark. Later, he could refer to it as the shack. Cool in the summer, warm in the winter. That's why our houses are like that. So you are a woman, he whispered in a tone exasperating both, uh, expressing both surprise and amusement. His body was blocking the sun, so I couldn't see him well either. I didn't know how to answer. Then he crossed the threshold, a long and voluminous stride. I was very slow to react. He talked about the war. When he finished gulping down the water, I wiped his mouth with, he wiped his mouth with his sleeve and sat down at the table. He asked for food. He asked for more. What's that? He asked when he heard the sound of the bells. A mass, I said, as I set a plate with pieces of meat in front of him. 
part of a funeral, I murmured later. He ate the same way he had drunk a few minutes earlier, eagerly, voraciously. He ate the food with his hands, and he lifted it to his mouth without turning to look at anything else. Then he chewed and swallowed noisily. Then he sucked his fingers clean. When he had his fill, he began to talk. He lit a pipe and talked without stopping about the war. The words followed from his flowed from his mouth just as the food had entered it a few minutes earlier. He told about the years of his life. He saw the adolescent he had been, thoughtful and serene. He heard gunshots, the echo of gunshots. He felt thirst. A relentless sun once more wrinkled his skin, blinded his eyes, dried his lips. He swallowed dirt. He desperately craved the taste of salt on his tongue. He allowed himself to be, to be hypnotized by color of fire. He walked for entire nights, climbing hills and descending them again, soaked with urine and with fear. He shot. He closed his eyes and shot many times. You don't know what it is like, he said. And then, without waiting for a reply, he continued. The cold, the filth, the smell of rotting flesh, death. He relieved it all again, a small body beneath the infinite, maddening sky. You're never more vulnerable than when you are under the sky, he insisted. I offered him some liquor because he seemed to need it. The noise of the bottle touching the wood broke his concentration. He looked at me again. He must have been wondering who I was, what I was doing here, where he actually was. But he didn't ask any questions. He drank the liquor in small sips. After a while, he fell asleep with his head on the table. Every forest always has another forest inside of it. The one on the inside is a mythical enchanted forest found in fairy tales. Living in the outside forest, however, is not easy. Life in the mountains require effort, requires effort, discipline, sacrifice. Above all, you need to have good hands. And it never hurts to have a level head on your shoulders, one that's accustomed to solitude. You need to cut down trees, plant seeds, use frigid water from the rivers. There can be fires, there are bears and eagles and other frightening animals. Sometimes, towards the end of the winter, everything is covered with snow, and you have to walk on the snow, keep moving forward. Sometimes, it's good to be able to recognize the sound of, of a breaking branch. It's good to walk slowly on the dry leaves. Sometimes you take a deep breath. Sometimes everything stops. But more than anything else, there is work in the forest. Lots of work. Fairy tales rarely mention this. And you can do all that by yourself? He asked me later. I told him the truth. I told him no. That I couldn't do all that by myself. And my answer seemed to satisfy him. Do the local men come to help you? As often as I helped them, I told him defiantly, 
or it seemed to me that my tone of voice was defiant. He returned to the topic many times, each time from a different angle, as if he couldn't find the best way to ask what he wanted to ask. Every forest always has another forest inside of it, I murmured when he got out of the bed and went to the window and stood there with an attitude of expectation. He stayed that way, very still, for a long time. When he turned around to look at me, I lowered my eyes. Then I covered my shoulders with a blanket. Then I said, you shouldn't be here. Why does someone grab a pair of notebooks, take a long trip, get off in a distant province, and then travel on the back of a donkey for days and days in order to reach, if they possibly can, the remotest spot imaginable? I don't know. Why does someone choose a forest? I can't answer that either. There is a green, of course. The abundance of greens that, is, that are the color green. You have to learn how to see. There is a fresh air and the sky. This is sky blue sky. The solitude of the sky. No one is even more defenseless than when they know they are alone under the sky. The possibility of remaining silent for hours at a time, days at a time, months at a time. The possibility of forgetting how to write. The possibility of not speaking. The, there are the extended, callous, dry, brutal hands that can take up instruments to cut, plant, plow. There is the voice, deep. The echo, also deep. The possibility of saying, we have burned all the villages. We have burned all the villages and the people in them. We have adopted their customs and their way of dress. The laughter inside the church uh, walls during the rites, the slow walking down the aisle, the shaking of hands, the endless bowings of heads. There is a crying of babies being born, a deep echo, another. There is a beginning, the oldest forest, the forest inside the forest that promised, listen to this. There is the inescapable fact that we have burned all the villages and the people in them. You can live in the forest without having a theory of the forest. During burials, when I joined the funeral procession, and later when I look inside the coffin at the dead person's face, it's impossible to avoid wondering if it's worth it, if all of this is worth it. The problem, as always, is the children and the old people. The problem is always the most vulnerable ones. The ones who one fine day abandon the joke and run as fast as they can among the trees, looking for a little light. Sometimes it gets so dark under the trees and so cold. The problem is the ones who lose their minds. You stand there looking at their dark pathways and you wonder about the taste of liquor in the mouth of the man who shovels dirt over all that. The forest means somewhere beyond, everything is in flames. There is a moth that flutters in the air. The blade of the instrument has severed the leg. The snow is falling. The nature of snow is to fall. 
There was snow before. There will be snow afterwards. The forest will survive all that, all of this. In front of the falling house, the illuminated face, an idol, the nature of houses is to fall. The noise of the axe, soon we will disappear. There is an urgent need to go to the tree, the amputated leg, the trail of blood on the snow, a pair of footprints. I told him I hadn't been in the city for many years. The last one I saw was the one I had left behind. Remembering its lights made me blink rapidly. Then I laughed. Show me your hands, he ordered instead of asking. Do you see that? He asked derisively, pointing at my splinters and my broken nails. You could never live in the city looking like that. His presumption annoyed me, especially since it was false. It bothered me that he thought I might want to return that I would be interested in going back to all that. A woman with red hands, a Carpathian mountain woman. So I turned away from him and I continued chopping the firewood into smaller and smaller pieces. I could hear my own breathing, my inhaling and exhaling. I concentrated on my wrist movement. I had to be taut and perfect without vacillating the shifting of my weight from one leg to the other, the vertical line of my arms, my back. Soon I settled into a familiar rhythm, my body inside its own choreography, my body inside the forest within. You shouldn't have come back, I whispered, my voice, my voice barely audible against the clamor of my agitated breathing. Why did you? People migrate, it's natural, he answered, also with his back turned. While it was happening, while all of this was taking place, I imagined the bodies engulfed in flames. Those visions interrupted my dreams. They interrupted my waking hours as well. They interrupted my theory of the forest. They never learn our language, said some in an attempt at self-justification, and all of these inside the church. They looked down on our dances, argued others, as the bells rang softly. Did you notice that they never bow their heads? The forest is always expanding. People kept asking the same questions, offering the same justifications. It didn't matter that others spoke, spoke of connecting rivers any attempt to explain about context, about the vital importance of the context for the dissemination of our language fell on deaf ears. There is something larger. Would we understand ourselves without others who don't understand us? There is something that contains us. These types of questions always provoke the general irritation, widespread grumbling. Within the church, one heard we burned their villages. It was a deep echo, a very soft voice. We burned the people in them. We adopted their customs, their way of dress. I looked down and found my hands, orphaned on my lap. All around me, the word British touched this. 
Civilization is always expanding, and so is barbarism. Between them is the forest, I know, the green, the sky, the snow which falls, the funeral bells, the blood, the footprint. There is a man in the forest who is a woman. There is a woman, a forest. I don't know if they did it for me, but I've always wondered about it. It's not easy to guess other people's intentions. Three more had died, the girls and a the boy. There were so few of us. Scarcity leads to strange behavior. The darkness under the trees, being an outsider, inhabitant of foreign realm. Panic is a disease, that's clear. They kept touching the children's foreheads just to make sure the fever could end with them. They tried to decipher their last words. It was a mother who pointed her finger. Panic is a disease, which is a drama. Her crying was a sharp instrument that cut me in two. I had lived among them, in fact, for many years. I had served them well. They had the kind of cautious affection for me that one feels toward someone who, because she arrived late, has lost forever the mystery of the cause. But they didn't view me with suspicion. They bowed their heads when I passed. When I broke a leg, they took care of my, of me, of my farm. One summer, they pulled me out of the well I had fallen into. They gave me three lambs, which later becomes, became seven, and then fifteen. Eventually, they became wool and also chunks of meat on pewter plates. We ate together. We sat swallowed in unison. We weren't intimidated by the gleam of each other's teeth or by the weight of our hands on the wooden table. At this table, we studied their dress and their customs in my notebooks. It was here that we lived through the books and saw the pictures. It was here that we planned the fires. I've spoken their language for as long as I can remember. Don't ask me why someone chooses a forest. I don't have an answer. Finally, he said, he had remembered. He said he'd seen me a long time ago, months or maybe even years before my depart departure. He recognized the notebooks, he said, the black covers, their unusual size, the hands that held them firmly. Do you remember that, he asked. Naturally, I answered that I didn't. That didn't make him stop. He said he hadn't been there on the opposite uh, sidewalk, standing in the drizzle, while I waited with the notebooks pressed against my chest for the bus that would take me far, far away. Now I remember that day, that day perfectly, he assured me. Of course, I shook my head vigorously at this. I must have looked at him with enormous eyes because suddenly he burst out in wild laughter. A bird that flies. I started to laugh without knowing exactly why. This kind of laughter, which soon, soon turns to hilarity, usually leaves me feeling desolate. There is a moment in every story when it is possible to suddenly see what will happen next. I saw it then and there, in the middle of a story invented by a stranger to create a context for a moment that never existed. Inside my desolation, after the laughter, that's why I kept silent.
because of this. Outside, the snow would soon be falling, again, silently. Little by little, the footsteps would become audible. The rest would happen in a flurry. The struggle, the bladed instrument in the air, its irrevocable fall, the body parts, the trickle of blood, the footprints. He had said before his wild fit of laughter that he was like a person who tells a story only to have the privilege or the power, this he also said, to include a foreign element into it, something that doesn't quite fit. I saw him then. I used my hands to expose his face. I saw him, absolutely. The last day, the day of the drizzle, it did not exist, I murmured. It was only then that he kept silent. It is difficult to explain how one can remain still under the snow for so long. Difficult to say, these are my knees, this is your torso, your thigh, these are your fingers, these are the eyes you looked at me with. People migrate, it's natural. It's always difficult to describe what an ax does. Difficult to witness the outstretched finger of the mother and difficult to hear her howling on the other side of the window and difficult to break in two very slowly when one understands the verdict. It's difficult to remain still with fists clenched and be a witness to the facts. The branch that rustles the bird. It is difficult to be under the sky. When I secretly murmured the word Carpathian, I was able to see a forest, a blue sky, and falling snow. I was a little girl then. That's the truth. Thanks. I think that's enough for the reading, right? That's <laughs> yeah. So if um, if you have questions or something, I want to hear about this manifesto. Ah, uh, you want to hear about the manifesto? Okay, good. <laughs> Last uh, year, I published a book of nonfiction. It's called Dolerse, a textos desde un país herido. To be in pain, I suppose, could be a right uh, translation text from a wounded country. And it essentially, um, I collected articles or pieces that I have been uh, writing um, in regards to the relationship of both writing and politics, especially in a country like mine, Mexico, which um, is going through tremendous um, uh, episodes of, of violence. So um, I thought that it was very important for me to to write about writing in moments in which it's very easy to forget writing and to think that um, other aspects of social life should be attended, which they should, of course. But in doing that, at times, um, we tend to forget that writing does more than just uh, telling stories. That writing is, in fact, a way through which we might um, find alternative ways to, to, to create uh, life, the kind of dignified life that I think we all have a right to live. So I, I, I wrote that, that book 
And at the, at the very end of that book, I included something that I called Keep uh, Writing, Seguir Escribiendo, which essentially is a series of um, phrases about the fact of, of the practice of writing. Uh, some very basic, some very much related to my own personal experience as a writer. But um, since you asked, uh, I think I'll, I'll read a couple of, of these and, and you'll you'll get an idea what this was um, all about. This was translated by uh, John Gibler, who is a journalist um, out of uh, San Francisco. He's been covering um, several social mobilizations taking place in Oaxaca State in the southern area of Mexico, a heavily indigenous state in, in my country. So, uh, um, because imagination is another name for criticism, and this another name for subversion. Because she who writes will never conform. Because writing's essence perhaps consists in nothing more than presenting a face, opening a face, and if necessary, offering the other cheek. Poetry does not impose itself, said Paul Celan. It exposes itself. But these are small concerns because to confront is, above all, to confront death, to put yourself in the pursuit of the unknown, or the same thing, of the dark, in that ethical and aesthetic position of an exhibition that opens and open opening damages, where there arises with singular pressure the certainty that death, independently of its circumstance, is violence. There, on that path, both the face and poetry Go it, go alone. They are alone, and for that reason too, because of memory. Because writing teaches us that there is nothing natural; things are closer than they appear. That too, writing tells us. Because uh, through this rectangular artifact that is the book, we communicate with our death, and all of death are our death. Because the sentence produces the memory wherein forever will live the names of Marco and Jose Luis Davila, Ciudad Juarez, Chihuahua, January 30th, 2010. Because the borders of the page are also the limits of the real. Because here there is a banner that reads, that reads tell them not to kill me. Because belonging is something I do through you, a sentence. Because there is an abyss at the end of every line into which it is worth the trouble to cast oneself, or charge into, or disappear into. Because look at how tear is torn from its verve. I'm aging rapidly, and I can hardly see. This is a very small print. Oh my gosh, radical aging, this is called. <laughs> because it is also where we could write if we were to write because in its job as a word, every word questions the habit of our, of our perception. Because a line is a curse or a prayer. Because the sentence produces the memory wherein forever we live, the name Lucila Quintanilla, Monterrey, Nuevo León, October 6, 2010. Because everything begins in effect, in fact, with a sign. Because a paragraph is an extreme sport. Because words are needed to say, I will not shake your hand, Mr. President. I will not welcome you. 
because language is a form of the know that always takes us somewhere else, most of all, to the somewhere else unforeseen by us. Because, because it is only through writing that the here is established because of the now. And uh, because yes, it's a diminutive and sacred and wild word all at once. That's more or less what it is all about. So if you've had, do we have time for questions or something? Or should we, if you have any questions, I'm here to answer some, to talk. Or not. Yes. Why Carpathian Mountains? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a, that was a strange decision. In fact, a long time ago, I, um, not long, some time ago, I should say, I was reviewing a book whose title was uh, Third Sex, Third Gender, Third Sex, Third Gender, a uh, collection of articles about um, these spaces that some societies have created for people who are not conforming to these uh, uh, dichotomy, sexual dichotomies. And one of them where these, uh, was devoted, one of these articles was devoted to these, the sworn virgins of the Balkans. That's, uh, that's in fact the, the historical strata, data for, for this uh, short story. And, and when I was writing it, I, I, can, I cannot explain why the Balkans became the, the Carpathian Mountains, uh, but um, the, kind of, uh, the kind of character that is here debating with this gender identity and, and in these um, remote uh, places uh, is very much related to this historical figure of uh, mostly found in the late 19th, early 20th century in this area. Yes? Did you say that you originally wrote that story in English or did I misunderstand it? And if you did, that Actually, this is uh, this story is, is uh, one of uh, about 15 stories that I published like in year 2010 uh, uh, with the title uh, La Frontera Más Distante, The Outmost Border. And um, I used to say that I, I wrote these stories in Spanish and then eventually some of them were translated into English. But uh, now that I am taking a look at the translations, I'm realizing, as with many other writings, that they were written in something that is not necessarily Spanish or English, but a combination of both. Mm-hmm. And, and at times I'm, uh, I find myself um, talking with the translators about you know, how this it looks and, and what's conceived in English, and then at that point I realized that, oh, that's, I did that and then I translated it into Spanish and then I wrote it. So this is work in translation already. It doesn't happen with every single sentence or with every single work that I've done, but um, that's something that has been, I've been realizing very slowly over the last two or three years, that some of this more recent work is, is already in translation. A very weird, strange translation, but, but still, it's not the original, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, if you speak both English and Spanish, why don't you translate your own work? It's very difficult. Um, I've um, I've tried with a couple of texts, and um, I think I've 
at the beginning, I, I didn't have fun. Mostly that's the reason why I didn't do it. Uh, that's the only reason why I don't do things usually. But, um, but more recently, and things seem to have changed more recently, uh, many of them in any case, I've, uh, I found a way of tracing perhaps something of the things that I was telling you, like tracing in, what, in which language this was conceived with what kind of um, tone or um, 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 sense of, of breathing was, was, this, was this conceived. And just trying to find that out has, has made the possibility of self-translation more interesting. But I don't think I'm, a, in fact, I mean, I'm going to say this out, in the public, out, out here in public. I, I don't think I'm a very good translator. And, and so uh, there are people who are really good, and, and they devote their lives to, to that. And, uh, and it's always very interesting to look at a piece that, uh, that you authored, so to speak, and then just to, to look at it as a new piece, as it's being taken, interpreted, uh, rewritten, in fact by others, and that experience is, is way more interesting than, than what I can do. So I could say that it's both things at the same time. Yeah. Yes? How is it uh, a different or a similar, what is the experience for you having a piece of prose translated or looking at something like uh, a poem that you've had translated? Are there, do you have different things you're looking for in the translation or things that you're yeah, yeah. I um, for a while I was working very closely with a very very good translator uh, from LA, Jen Hoffer, and uh, mostly the work that I did with her is something that we might call a recognized as poetry, and uh, and since she's a poet, uh, the conversation went out very smoothly, and, and it, it took on very interesting routes. In fact, um, and these other works, they like this story or this text was included in a book of short stories, but it's not necessarily conforming to a very traditional sense of what a short story is. And there are a bunch of detours and, and things that are done here or are happening in this text that is not necessarily linked to plot, you know, like usually uh, fiction is supposed to do. Um, and, and so the, the conversation with the, with the translator was a, was a bit different. Uh, the point that I, I didn't meet him personally and that I, I was not in as, in, in as close a conversation as I was with John Hoffer at the beginning, I think it helped. And over the years, I think I've become less um, anxious about, you know, having my voice translated into this other language. And I'm, I'm way more interested in what your sense of interpretation your gaze could do with something that I happen to, to have written in the past, you know? So um, these, that makes for good conversations, I think. And, uh, and in these cases, and, and especially with the, with the other piece, the, the manifesto sort of uh, like piece, uh, since the conversation was very political in tone, uh, it was more, um, it took place more in that terrain, in that arena of, uh, you know, the struggle, the daily struggle, and the politics of the time, uh, which is the, the arena of language, of course. And uh, and so, with its own specificity in each one of these cases, I think it's been, it's been a good, it's been fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Um, in the Latin, says this thing that I don't know whether it's true or not, but. 
that we write the same story over and over again in every book. Or, and I always think of it as, I, you know, I circle the same question no. or something. If you have a story that you write in every single piece or a question that you circle, what is it? Oof. Ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> I go to the therapist for the whole <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> you know, what do they say? Obsessions are obsessions because we cannot see them. Mm-hmm. And those are the kind of things that we continuously go back to just because we cannot see them. Yeah. Uh, and I think that happens a lot with, with writing. I, um, the first novel that I published a while ago, it was called uh, No One Will See Me Cry. Yeah. And it's a novel that I wrote based on um, historical documents out of an insane asylum. And... Um, it was well received, and it was, you know, I, I was happy with that. So for the se- for the second novel, I I had decided very consciously to write something totally different. <laughs> and I said, you know, I changed. I, it was a more verbal novel. More, it was based more on verbs than in, on nouns. And I, in my mind, I had made something totally, absolutely different because I wanted to be out of that first novel. And when I was doing the promo for the second novel, the first question that I got was something like, uh, and why are you still writing about the same thing? <laughs> and, and then I said, what do you mean? Uh, and they said, well, you know, there's a hospital in one in the, your first novel, and there is a hospital in the second one. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, huh, yeah, right. And th- there is a photographer, a character who is a photographer in the first one, and you have a photographer in the second. <laughs> and so they, they were, you know, giving me all these pieces of evidence, and, and the only thing that I could say is, like, I, I didn't see that. <laughs> I, I, I was thinking of verbs, and I was thinking of nouns, and I didn't see that. And so, and, and, and I was very honest, in fact, I, I hadn't been able to, to look at that, that I'm continuously moving in this, in this terrain, I guess, the marginal, the outsiders, um, voices that are not necessarily heard or taken into consideration in mainstream narratives of society. Uh, and, uh, and I guess I'm, I'm attracted to that because of aesthetic and political reasons and questions that relate to that process, to the negotiation, to the interaction, to the struggle that comes into play with that are issues that, that remain with me. And I've been asking those questions in many ways and at times with the same type of characters and structure. But well, uh, yes, I, I guess that, that would be, as far as I can tell, that, that would be something that, that remains. Mm-hmm. Yes? Oh, thanks, thanks. Yeah, these are, uh, I'm thinking, are there hospitals in there? Yeah. Uh, there are marginal people, that's for sure. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, this is a project that I've been, um, it's an exercise, in fact, that I've been working on for a while now uh, on uh, interrupted basis. Uh, and you can actually see, see that in my, in my blog. It's a reappropriation, re an exercise on um, rewriting techniques with uh, one of the major uh, canonical works in Mexican literature. 
and some of you who have been to my classes have read that perhaps more than once, uh, uh, Pedro Paramo. And so that's one of the, um, the projects that I've been uh, engaging. The other one is, is a, a fotonovela, something, these little stories with, uh, with images, with pictures, uh, working with little dolls, plastic dolls in different kind of scenarios. And, you know, the kind of things that, that I have so much fun doing them that I, I actually don't think that I'm writing. And, uh, and interestingly enough, I don't have hospitals or photographers, in fact, in those kind of projects. So perhaps something is changing. But you're taking pictures. But I'm, yeah, <laughs> it's more radical now. <laughs> it's not the character, in fact. Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. So we cannot escape. What can we say? Okay, so I think thank you so much for coming.